Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word through Psalm 51, um, I pray that you would make yourself known to us here, God. Help us see the, the power of the gospel and the way in which you work in our participation of the gift of repentance, and then help us to see the glory, the joy, the goodness that comes um, when those whom you have saved trust in your finished work, God. Help me make a big deal of your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, beginning of the summer, we had a guest speak on, on Psalm 51, and uh, I'm here to fix all the things he said wrong. No, not at all. Uh, listen, every single verse in the chapter, man, you can probably listen to 10, 15, 20 endless sermons on those same verses, those same chapters, and the Lord would reveal something different. And each verse of the gospel is a treasure trove to be mined, and uh, and that's simply where we're at today. We're just mining that save, same hole in the ground cave. I'm clearly not a miner. Uh, okay, so in your Bibles, you'll notice at the top, you will see, if you're looking at Psalm 51, this, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him 
after he had gone into Bathsheba, that gives us an indication that there's a dramatic story here to be told. And uh, I'm sure the vast majority of us are familiar with that story. This is the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. David was the king of Israel. Uh, He had been a good king. And one day he's like walking around on his rooftop deck. He sees Bathsheba bathing Uh, and he begins to have an affair with her. Bathsheba is not just a random person. This is the wife of Uriah. Uriah is the best friend of David. Uh, They've been through war together. Uh, He is his essentially right-hand man. Like you don't just happen to live in like the house next to the king. That, that's not, it's not like a real estate situation where you're just like buying the house next door. You know what I mean? You have to be invited. You have to be someone special, someone trusted, somebody recognized in order to live near the king. And Uriah was David's homie. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't say the word homie. Um, before David was king, it's important to remember that David was at one point in exile, fleeing from the previous king, hiding and moving from cave to cave for his life. And at that time, Uriah would have been with him. He would have been one of the faithful few that stood by David as he was being persecuted from the king. Uriah fought wars in David's name. Even while this is happening with Bathsheba, Uriah is off fighting a war in the name of his king and friend, David. And so the house next door is well-earned. He's a trusted friend. David gets Bathsheba pregnant, and David's plan at first is to hide his sin. And so he calls Uriah home, tries to get him to sleep with his own wife in hopes that he would think that it's his child. Uh, Uriah being a faithful servant is like, I cannot uh, indulge in this way while my men are still off to war. And so David takes it a step further, gets him drunk. He still refuses to do it. David is kind of at wit's end at this point. And so what does he do? He devises a plan to send David off into the front lines and have him die in battle. Essentially, David orchestrates the murder of his best friend, of his trusted mate. This is what happens and what leads up to this story. After that, David thinks he gets away with it. He marries Bathsheba, they have the baby, and then one day the prophet Nathan comes to him, calls him out. And this Psalm, Psalm 51, is his Psalm of repentance. This is what it looks like for David to bring his sin into light and repent of all that he has done. And in the midst of this, we're going to take a broad overview of what that looks like, and we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see what it looks like to recognize our sins. Second, we're going to see what it looks like to repent from sins. And then we're going to see what it looks like to rejoice over the salvation that we have through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is an inside look, ultimately, of the story of us, the story of me and you, of every human being who has ever come to know the grace of God through the cross. This is our story. 
First, it starts out with this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. I want us to focus on that phrase, steadfast love. The thing that is causing David to repent of his sins is not fear, but understanding primarily the steadfast love of God. And that is my first point, is that true sorrow, deep repentance, and clear knowledge of the gospel starts when we have a clear understanding of the love of God for us. You see, it would be a great error for us to think that repentance primarily comes from fear. Though the fear of the Lord is an important aspect here, but here's the danger. If repentance looks like simply a get out of jail free card, if repentance simply looks like, man, I don't want to deal with the consequences of my sin, I'm afraid of hell, I'm afraid of the consequences socially, and for that reason, that is my motivation, I will repent of this sin. We are missing what true, deep, transformational repentance looks like in our lives. What ultimately motivates your faith? Is it simply to get out of hell, to earn God's favor, to get blessings from God? You see, when we do moral things, when we do religious things, simply to avoid punishment, we have not yet come to understand the steadfast love that God has for us. Ultimately, we are still acting in those moments in self-preserving self-love. In other words, self-love could look like repentance, but only deep repentance and love for God leads to transformation. You know, it's like this. I know I've used this analogy before, so forgive me those who have heard this one, but imagine someone does something terrible. You know, he gets caught in infidelity with his wife and she kicks him out of the house. And the dude is like sleeping on his buddy's couch. And he's like, man, I miss her cooking. I miss my TV. I miss my bed. I miss my couch. So I'm going to go over there and ask for forgiveness. So the dude shows up at his own front door, knocks on the door. The wife opens it. And he's like, babe, I miss your cooking. I miss my bed. I miss that big TV to watch football games on. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Man, does that sound like repentance? Does that sound like a love for that person's wife or a love for himself? You see, true repentance comes when we first see the steadfast love that God has for us which then leads to a steadfast love for him. So then repentance looks like, I love you. And I would hate to do anything that would cause you harm. I want to right what I did wrong here. I want to do well by you. True repentance is less about self-love and more about the love that God has shown us. Verse 4 says, 
against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, talking about God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We also need to recognize that true repentance is between us and God first and foremost, or between you and the Lord. Now, if you think about it, like you got to imagine if you're reading this for the very first time and you see David say something like, against God and God alone have I sinned, that should raise a red flag in our mind. Against God and God alone? Like, how about against Bathsheba and her family? How about against Uriah and his parents? Like, they have a dead son, his siblings. How about the entire nation as king? David has a, a responsibility to uphold a certain moral and religious standard for his people. So in other words, like, David has sinned against the kingdom, against Uriah's family, against Bathsheba, against his own family. And here he is, like, having the audacity to say against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, God? How can that be? It's important to recognize that David is not downplaying the sins he has committed against others. There is a need for horizontal reconciliation in David's life, without a doubt. But what matters here is that David recognizes that ultimately his sin is with God first, Sin is not in the eyes of David. It is not in the eyes of the nation. It is not in the eyes of Uriah's family or in Bathsheba's family. Ultimately, sin is sin. Falling short is, is in the eyes of God and God alone. I mean, think about this. Like, David is the king. And as king, he has the power to declare himself righteous. He could be like, look, I've done nothing wrong at this point. I'm the king. Who's going to argue with me? But what he does is that he recognizes that he is not the moral standard of his own lives. And this goes against sort of the narrative and standard that we hear in our culture today. The follow your own heart standard. The be like, be God mode, king of your own kingdom standard in our own lives. Like every single one of us, man, we, we have to recognize that the standard for righteousness, the standard for goodness does not come from culture. It does not come from neighbor. It does not come from tribe, from community, from self. It comes from God and God alone. And what he declares right is right. And what God declares wrong is wrong. This is what David is looking at. As Danny mentioned, it's so easy for us to try to reorganize our sins to our own standards, to make them seem not so bad, to make excuse for the things that we have done. You know, I was uh, a few years ago, some social media platform, I can't remember which one it was, but like they were doing this like comparison of like your most recent picture to like the first picture you ever posted. And like the disparity was wild, like especially for those of us who kind of grew up with social media in like either high school or college or like, you know, the first time you got social media in your 40s, Brian Sides. Uh, my bad. Uh, he's still on MySpace. Um, the pictures were interesting, though, because you like and again, I've said this before, but you looked at those first pictures and like we were all like we did not we did not know how to be photogenic. You know what I mean? It was all a little bit pixelated. The lighting was a little bit off. Like our smile was like all awkward. And then you like fast forward a little bit and now you see like all of us know something about lighting. 
All of us know a little bit about framing. All of us know something about pixelation. And now our pictures are framed to be like Instagrammable. Instagrammable. We know the filters. We know how to put ourselves in a position where we look a little bit better than we did in like 2002, right? Here's the thing. We are masters at reframing things to our own standards. We use our own filters, our own angles to look at things and go, yeah, it's not that bad. As Danny mentioned, like, we, we look at ourselves, we're like, yeah, man, like, I, yeah, I got angry, but that person. We try to excuse it away or make it seem smaller than it actually is. And we've been doing that since the beginning. Like Eve was like, no, no, it's not my fault. It was the snake. Adam is like, no, no, it's not my fault. It's Eve's. Man, we need to see sin in our own lives from God's angle, with God's filter, in God's framing, and in God's light. That is the only way we could ever come to a place of repentance in our own eyes or in God's eyes. Ultimately, you and I, we're not the center of the universe. God is, and we need to see this life through his eyes. This is exactly what David does. Verse seven, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, he he sees his sin and he hates it. He finally sees it in light of what God is saying. And he's like, man, I don't care what other people say. I hate my sin. That leads us to our second point, which is that we are called to repent from our sin, verses eight through 11. Let me hear joy and gladness. The bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is recognizing in this moment, that his sin is an issue of, of the heart. Like this isn't surface level repentance. This is deep repentance. This isn't situational issues. This is an issue of the heart. Here's what I mean by deep repentance. Uh, Paul Tripp talks about like our interaction with our fruitfulness and, and that of a tree, right? And he says like, if you see a tree and you see bad fruit, fruit that has gone bad, it's not giving you like the right delicious apples that you were hoping for. Surface level sin is thinking like, ah, I just need to adjust my behavior. I just need to change, put certain things in place, mechanisms in place so I avoid doing the same thing over and over again. I need to adjust a few things here and there to change the fruit issue. But he says, ultimately, that's kind of like having a bad apple tree in your backyard, going out there, taking down all the bad apples and then stapling good apples back onto that tree. Like that doesn't solve the problem. What he says is that deep repentance is an uplifting of the roots. It's a removal of all of the things that make us tick, that causes those fruit, those, there's, those bad fruits to come out in our lives. And that is what David is doing here. He's looking deep inside of his own heart. And he's like, this is not a situational issue. That is not what this is. This is an issue of my own heart. And then he is inviting God 
into rearranging his loves, which I know you guys have heard me say that before. It's very Augustinian in nature. Augustine believed that ultimately the reason why we sin is because we have a disordered love issue. We love the wrong things in the wrong ways and at the wrong times. We love ourselves, our pride, our ambition, our goals, whatever it may be. And what David is doing here is he's inviting God in to rearrange his sins, to uproot those roots so that he could see new fruit. He hates his sin. Uh, I just realized that like, I made you guys kind of squirmish at the Christmas Eve service. I'm about to do it again. Sorry about that. I, I do not mean to be the squirmish guy, uh, but I have an aunt in Mexico that, uh, I've said this before, so I apologize if you guys remember this. I have this aunt in Mexico, and one day she wakes up and she's got like this major like nose pain. And after a day or two, she starts like smelling something that's just like terrible to her. She has no idea what's going on, right? So she finally goes to the doctor, and the doctor's like, ah, a cockroach crawled up into your nose and died. Now, if that's the news you get from your doctor, what's your next response? Are you going to be like, oh, that's interesting. Let me go home and think about this for a little bit. No, you're going to be like, dude, get this thing out of me. I want it out as quickly as humanly possible. When we truly see sin in the light of how God tells us, and when we truly understand the root issues of our hearts, it is like something utterly alien is revealed to us and we want it out of our lives. There's no hesitation. There's no excuse making. There's no consideration. It's simply like, God, intervene. Get this out of my life. Get this out of my heart. I need you right now to do something because I do not want this to be a part of my story anymore. That is what repentance looks like. Timothy Keller said it like this, the gospel is only an implicit, untapped power in your life until it's released in the power through repentance for the changes you want, the changes you seek, the changes you need, the secret is repentance. The secret is repentance. That leads us to our third point which is to rejoice in the gospel. That is where repentance leads us out of habitual habits, habitual sins, out of excuse making, out of doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results into, out of shame and guilt and into rejoicing over the love that God has for us through the gospel. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Do you hear the joy dripping from the pen of David? 
he sees the love that God has offered him. And he is rejoicing in the gospel. And I love that David's ultimate response in repentance isn't just that he repents of his sins, but then he is so filled with joy that he is ready to move into the world and express what God has done. And that is my last point here is that true repentance leads to a life filled with ambition to display the gospel. Whether you call that evangelism or living on mission or being in gospel community, whatever language you want to use, it is clear that repentance leads to putting God's work on display. I've said it like this before, that ultimately inviting others, sharing the gospel, all of that does not primarily come motivated from like an obligation to do God's work, but rather an overflow of the joy that we have discovered in the gospel. God has built us to be this way. Every single one of us, the introvert and the extrovert. And my proof is this, that every single one of us in our lives, we have moments where we like, we eat like the most amazing meal. We read an incredible book. We watch a great movie. We binge like a new Netflix series. And the next thing we want to do, the natural next step when we're super excited about that thing is to go and tell others about it. That's what we all do. Man, have you been to this new spot? Have you read that new book? Have you seen that new movie? Have you seen that show? Like which one of us hasn't said something along those lines? Why do we do that? Because God has designed us to overflow with joy over something and then express it into the lives of other people. And that is exactly what is happening in David's life right here and now. He is coming to see the grace of God. His repentance moves him away from shame and guilt, has him stop focusing on, on his own selves, and then starts focusing on the community around him. He wants others to see the love that God has for him. The question for us today is have we responded to the gospel in that same way? Are we quick to repent of our sins? This isn't something that Christians just do at the beginning of their walk with Jesus. This is an ongoing process that we all do regularly. Actually, the early Christians used to be made fun of. They were called the repenters. People like mocked them because they were quick to like recognize where they went wrong in their life and then desire change for them. This is like the mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Does our lives look like ones of repentance that it's filled with rejoicing and then filled with the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we seen the steadfast love of God? Have you seen it? In closing, uh, we need to do something about Uriah. Because at the end of all this, it's like David repents, and there's a bit of a process, but like he's able to move forward. Uh, and by the time Psalm 51 is dead, like it's like, oh, that's rad. But then like in the back of your mind, you're like, but wait a minute, Uriah is still dead, his best friend. 
Without a doubt, commentators have focused on how David was a foreshadowing of Jesus, that David was a good king who fell short. Jesus is the great king who never sinned. David is the one that worked to bring about the kingdom of God, but Jesus is the one that fully brought about the kingdom of God. And so without a doubt, David is a foreshadowing in Jesus, of Jesus. But in that same way, Uriah reminds us of the friend that we have in Jesus. Because ultimately, Uriah's death is the consequence of the sin of David. In that same way for me and you, our sin, the consequence of that is the death of Christ. He is our friend who never left us, who is always there for us, who sacrificed everything, who didn't leave us in the cave and in the darkness. In the end, he is the one that died out of loyalty and love for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be set free, so that you could come to know the steadfast love of God. Do you know the steadfast love of God? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.